whoa, there was a couple bombshells dropped today in an airmail article that we're going to go over piece by piece. Please hit and subscribe and ring that notification bell. That way you're notified of all our videos and lives that we do. With that being said, this is an airmail article from Howard Bloom. He's been working this case you know, since the beginning. He's been writing a, a basically short stories that are going to eventually lead to probably a novel that he's writing. There are some bombshells that came out today. Uh, this is the article is called The Eyes of a Killer Part 5. No, it's part six. I'm sorry. And in this article, it's basically mainly about uh, Kaylee Gonzalez's dad and the stuff that he had gone through, his personal experiences, etc. So let's get into this. So I'm going to start off right here. And just to give you guys some pretense up to this point in this article, it was kind of talking about the Gonzalez family, uh, Steve, his, his daughter, Olivia, and, and, and Christy Gonzalez, mother of Kaylee, were going through this case and trying to figure out clues, right? So they started going through their daughter's phone records and, and calling folks and stuff like that. And they ended up finding, or as this article says, they had discovered a persistent series of calls in the wee hours of that morning from Kaylee to her ex-boyfriend, Jack Decor. Calls had gone unanswered, start cross young romance, or could it be something more ominous? He passed that information to the cops. And this is where we find out some information that I talked to Christy Gonzalez, Kaylee's mom, and she had informed me that police had picked up Jack Decor very early on in this investigation. So she found out at 1.32 p.m. that something had occurred, right, from family friends that uh, were aware from the area. And she immediately started to call phone. She tried to call Jack DeCore, and his phone, he never, he never answered. Uh, what she told me was that they found later that he was awakened by his roommates, and they uh, basically there was cops down the street. They walked over there. He explained to the officer that that was his ex-girlfriend's house. They immediately took him into police department for questioning. Now, I knew based on my interview with, with Christy that they did a thorough search through him, searched his phone, did many interviews, the whole nine yards, did a DNA swab. What I didn't know was they actually hooked him up to a lie detector test too. So it says, yet when Moscow PD summarily hooked Jack up to a lie detector test and administered a DNA swab to compare with the evidence found at the crime scene. Now, remember, they picked him up the first day, first day, day one within an hour or so, because obviously if he's not answering the phone when Christy's calling at 132 and, and he's describing or they're describing that police were already there at the scene, that means that, you know, and the 911 call didn't come until noon. So at some point between noon and 132, Jack Core was picked up and was talked to, administered a lie detector test and a DNA swab to compare with evidence found at the scene. I don't know if that was all done the first day. All right, I can't see that they're going to do the lie detector test and also know about the DNA that's on the scene first day. You know, they still got to process everything and check things. So I'm assuming that this happens over the span of the next couple of weeks, just like Christy had told me that he was constantly being called in. He passed both examinations with flying colors, according to one of Steve's friends. Steve, however, was still not completely assaged. Nothing about the murders made any sense. So everything seemed possible. And when a grieving Jack came to the Gonzalez home not long after the events to pay his respects, Steve gravely demanded that the young man submit to the indignity of a physical inspection. Jack promptly rolled up his sleeves, lifted his shirt, exposed his neck, and displayed his hands, both palms up and down, while Steve meticulously searched in vain for a telltale scratch or bruise. As Steve wasn't done, caught up in his new forensic professionalism, he took a series of photographs documenting Jack's unblemished state. It was expulgatory evidence that would come in handy, he felt as as the authorities proceeded to compel their list of suspects. And with a bit of awkward business out of the way, the two grieving men finally embraced. Well, I know that Jack DeCore, according to Christy, won't arrive to the Gonzalez family home until the next morning. Well, obviously, if they found the sheath, right, that's going to be a pretty big, important piece of evidence. You're probably going to process that as soon as possible, right? If there's no knife that belongs in that sheath and you have victims that whose lives were taken as a result of 
a sharp edge object, then you're going to take that sheath in and you're going to go process it. So it's, it's possible, I guess, that the uh, Moscow Idaho lab got a DNA profile or discovered the DNA on the button of the knife sheath day one. I would have taken that immediately. And which is why, like in certain statements or affidavits that state that they were told by ISP officers that there was a leather sheath there, maybe perhaps that's because as soon as the main detective and the coroner came through, looked at the scene, the coroner created a cause of death. I think that thing was packaged up, sealed tape, sent out to evidence for processing. And if anybody else came in through afterwards, they wouldn't have seen it, right? Now, here's some other stuff that, again, kind of going with what our theory was and what our statements were. This kind of clears up a lot of those things. So this is here in the days that followed Steve tracked down Hunter Johnson, Chapin's frat brother and best friend. Before noon on November 13, Johnson had been summoned by the two distraught survivors of the King Road house. He had discovered Ethan's body. Days later, he gave his eyewitness account to Steve as a soldier might straightforward, factual, and without either emblemishment or emotion. It was only when he finished that the two men, both overwhelmed, at last convulsed into tears. This conversation that Steve had is the one that was previewed to when I spoke with Kristen Gonzalez. She spoke about this conversation with Hunter Johnson and informed me what Hunter had said in this in this situation. She said that Hunter had gotten a call from the girls. He immediately went over. He couldn't make entry into the second floor bedroom because a body was blocking the door. He was able to move the door enough to peer into the bedroom. He saw what he said, get out. Don't know who he was talking to. Don't know how many people he was talking to when he said get out. And they called 911. can be a little bit more specific now because it's out. So with all that said, Steve went out and did his own investigation. You know, the police weren't helping him. There was a gag order and stuff like that. And it kind of goes through some of the troubles that Steve had had. It also states that there was a Linda Lane footage. It referenced the Linda Lane footage here. And it talks about how that footage got out and that there was audio superimposed on it and it wasn't accurate. And that he used the screenshot from 1112 King Road at 1.56 a.m. He admits that it was him in here, that he has that video, but he only released the screenshot with the explanation that you hear in the Linda Lane footage, if there's other people that are driving through there, like people are claiming, it's not showing up on this video that they have. So all of that stuff is completely bogus. Now, I do think that the video on the Linda Lane footage is accurate. I mean, it shows a vehicle traveling around in the manner that um, the white Elantra or the white vehicle that is seen and described in the probable cause affidavit is maneuvering. So it does do those things. So I do think that what you see is accurate, but I think people superimposed audio on it to make it seem like it was something different. And essentially that's what Steve had said as well. So basically FBI, law enforcement, they put a gag order. He wasn't allowed to talk. He wasn't getting information. And he started doing his own investigating. He even talked to like a jailhouse snitch who basically was just trying to get money out of him with some story um, that ended up not being real. And this is where we get into some of the bombshells. It says here, not all of Steve's investigating efforts had been in vain. He assembled a retinue of blue chip sources that he revealed to several friends, including an FBI agent in St. Louis office who had shared his personal email so that his in the bureau wouldn't learn that he was communicating with Steve, a handful of additional sympathetic law enforcement officers, and most of all, a conduit of two of the grand jurors who had been on the panel that voted to indict Brian Koberger. So I spoke to a lot of people, including two people that heard some of the evidence against Koberger. Interesting. And the process, he had compiled some of the starting revelations, hard-won information that he triumphantly disclosed to his newfound internet associates. Koberger had purchased a dark blue Dickies long sleeve work uniform at the Walmart in Pullman, Washington, not long before the murders. Ooh. So he, we 
assume that he had purchased the knife back in, I think it was April of 2022, before he moved there, Pullman and Moscow area. We know that he also got an email around that time. And that has been released from the Pullman, Washington Police Department, basically a conversation between Brian and the chief there uh, talking about his application or his possible appointment to an intern position at the police department because of the probable cause affidavit that he applied again in the fall. So he was you know, talking about his application in the spring and him applying for a job. And then he's applying for the same thing in the fall. That kind of leads us to believe that more than likely he didn't get the job in the spring, right? In the same month that he gets turned down, that we, we assume that he gets turned down for the job. We've we found out through other news sources that basically they claim that Brian Coburger did in fact purchase a knife off of Amazon. So according to this, it says the authorities had a copy of the 49.99 receipt. And they also had a theory to explain how Coburger had managed to the crime scene without a scratch, without leaving an incriminating drop of blood in his getaway car or his apartment. He had worn the work uniform during the murders and then disrobed before he got behind the wheel of his Hyundai Elantra for his circuitous drive back to his apartment. Perhaps the authorities hypothesized he had stuffed the work suit into a plastic garbage bag and then shoved it into his trunk. Where have we heard that before? I think that's been our theory for the last, I don't know, Months, six months, maybe we've been saying that Brian Goberger had some sort of coverall suit. And what that did was protect him from leaving his DNA behind. Those typically don't have a belt loop, so you can't put a knife sheath on there. If he didn't take a you know, belt, no knife sheath, he'd have to take the knife in his hand. Now, he doesn't want to risk cutting himself, so he puts it in the sheath. Because if he cuts himself at any point in the house, that's going to leave some blood DNA that isn't going to be explainable as much as touch DNA, right? That is exactly what we have been saying for the last few months. He had a uh, coveralls. There was a receipt that was picked up. Now, the reason why I said that there was something on that receipt and that it was there was a Dickies tag, the reason why I said that those things were picked up were because those were evidence. Now, if there was Something on that receipt, like just bubble gum and a soda pop, that wouldn't be picked up. There would have had to have been something that would have somehow connected to the crime in order for it to have been as evidence. Let's continue. Only there was no sign of the Dickies outfit. I wonder why. I wonder where it's at. Police had looked high and low, but they couldn't find it just as they couldn't locate the murder weapon. They had a receipt for a K-Bar knife, which he purchased online months before the killing. So I just spoke about that. They also have a receipt for a K-Bar. I only know how he purchased the K-Bar. And how they know he purchased it, they have a receipt. But this too had seemingly vanished. And what they're talking about is the K-Bar knife had seemingly vanished. So his Dickies coverall suit and his K-Bar knife that he purchased, gone. As long as these two crucial pieces of evidence remain unavailable, Steve feared building a case against Koberger would remain more open than shut. We had said before that there was some text messages and that we had heard the, the surviving roommates were texting each other during the time of this incident. And then one of the text messages was something to the effect, like, I think somebody killed them or something to that effect. And it was between Beth, uh, Bethany and Dylan. This article talks about that. Even more troubling, if true, what Steve learned from uh, people who had spoken to members of the grand jury who had been presented with prosecution's case. It centered on the alleged behavior of the two roommates who had miraculously survived the night unscathed. He wondered, could they have slept fully unaware through the savage pre-dawn stabbing? of four people in a narrow house with paper thin walls. Later, a police David revealed that one of the survivors, Dylan Mortensen, had in fact heard noises and had left her room only to spot a masked, darkly clad intruder making his way through the residence before she uh, retreated to her room and did not summon for help for eight hours. Reasons that have never been revealed. So police don't even know why it took her eight hours to call. So that's that's a bit of a question mark. That's a huge question mark in my opinion. 
But I will say this. I have been privileged to some information. You know, I have information, whether it's from um, sources, from people that live in the neighborhood, live in the area, attend the university, whether it's WSU or University of Idaho. I also have, I've been in contact with some of the victim's family members. I am aware that Dylan and Bethany have uh, of a situation that would elude me to believe that Dylan and Bethany were told not to say anything about this case and basically to lie. So I know there's been some rumors out there. Ethan was found in his bed and that basically that information is coming from either one of the surviving roommates. Like I said, I, I have some information that states they would lie about information like that if they were asked. I can't describe how or why, but I just know that. So if they're going to say anything or anything comes out, I would, from Dylan or Bethany, I just take that with a grain of salt, just solely because of the fact that if they're doing what law enforcement and prosecution told them to do, which is not to give information and you know, maybe even lie about the situation, then they're going to do it. Yet Steve had been told that the two survivors had not only been awake while the killings had taken place, but they had heard everything. More astonishingly, more astonishingly, his grand jury sources alleged that the two girls had been texting one another as the murderer methodically went from one room to the next. The possibility that the two had a sense of horror while it occurred and not acted, calling neither friends or or 911 left Steve Ford. No less confounding they had if the sources were as knowledgeable as he believed, then let hour after hour tick away before they finally decide to summon friends. It added an entirely new brand of mystery to a crime that was already bound by unanswered questions. Now, this is another bomb. I think, I think, and this is my speculation that's going to be coming out on this. I know who this source might be. I was contacted not too long ago about some information about this. And as this information comes to light, I'll, I'll talk more about it. I'm not going to give up who it is or where they're from or any of those things. Um, but I will say a couple of things. Let's read this and then we'll go through into it. Steve intensified his efforts to get answers. And in that dodge process, he came to believe the government must protect its source, an informant who could provide testimony that would tighten the screws that held together the case against Coburger. Steve was determined to talk to them. He did not want to wait for the trial to get knowledge he needed for his peace of mind he believed now and after some digging he grew convinced he had the informant in his sights he was preparing to reach out to this individual to get right in his face i mentioned they say his face and confront him they're alluding that it's a guy but explain that he was empowered by the father's natural right to understand fully the last moments of his daughter's life in fact it was his duty it was an argument he felt that no one could reject and at last he would know the whole story of what really happened to kaylee and why. But before he could make his move, before he could get any room and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk with the witness, he was unexpectedly stopped in his tracks by the FBI. The Bureau had sent an official letter to Steve's attorney in Moscow, Shannon Gray, warning if there were any attempt to contact the individual Steve had been pursuing, there would be legal consequences. The witness had originally reached out to authorities through a tip line that promised to protect the identities of anyone volunteering information, and that the Bureau was duty-bound to honor that commitment. And the letter went on to make it clear with an intimidating force the fact that he was the father of one of the victims gave him no dispensation from the legal consequences that accompany with tampering witness. Stymied, Steve sulked away. The promise of a real understanding was out there yet tantalizing beyond his grasp. And with this setback, he felt to a period of sadness. So I got a email a while ago from a person who was from the area. And basically what this person had told me was that the witness in this case, the DoorDasher, apparently from what I understand is the DoorDasher went to drop off the food. Now, this is all my you know, speculation. I have no way of proving this, that the DoorDasher went to drop the food off and actually saw the white launcher by a couple of times and actually saw Brian Koberger in the car. Now, they didn't know that it was Brian Koberger, obviously, at that time or any of those things. They just saw a guy in the car. 
And they also stated that they saw Xana awake in the window. And it appeared, though, that they both had noticed that this white car had passed by a couple of times. I don't know how true that is or what, but that's what I was told. And, you know, it kind of makes sense. I mean, who was up and around at that time outside of the victims and the roommates? The door dasher. That's the only one we know that was up and around and that was in the neighborhood. But I strongly suspect that that's going to be the case, that the door dasher did, in fact, see a white Elantra and perhaps saw the driver and identified Brian Koberger as that driver. We'll find out in court. That's all I got for you guys today. Please hit that like and subscribe. If you're still here and not a subscriber, what are you waiting for? We do breaking news. We do three live shows a week where we talk about all this. In fact, Monday night, we're going to go more in depth into this. That being said, this is the Drunk Turkey Show. We'll see you Monday night. Peace.